Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey everybody, how are you? Welcome to the Other People Show. I am Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, and it is good to be with you. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Andrew Sean Greer, Pulitzer Prize winner and author of the new novel, Less is Lost. They'll say, get rid of it, make it more normal. They'll try to make it more like something they understand. And that's always the wrong thing to do. The thing to do is to commit to what's strange about it. The thing that's sticking out that they want to lop off, you have to make everything else match that. Because that's the thing that's you about the book. That's the thing that's new and interesting. And otherwise it becomes like a mediocre book. All right. That was Andrew Sean Greer. His new novel, Less is Lost, is available now from Little Brown and Company. Andrew Sean Greer is the author of six works of fiction, including the bestsellers, The Confessions of Max Tivoli, and a novel called Less. He's taught in a number of places, including the Iowa Writers' Workshop, and he's won a bunch of literary awards, including the California Book Award, the New York Public Library Young Lions Award. He has received a Guggenheim, an NEA grant, all that stuff. And in 2018, he was awarded the Pulitzer Prize in Fiction for his novel, Less, to which he has now written a kind of sequel with the uh, much-celebrated publication of this new novel of his entitled, Less is Lost. Less is Lost is a very funny book, very charming, It features the protagonist, Arthur Less, a moderately accomplished novelist who is making his way across the United States of America on assignment as a journalist, as an author, watching his work be adapted for the stage, as a middle-aged man trying to reconnect with his estranged father. He is also dealing with grief, 
following the death of a former partner. He's dealing with relationship stuff and struggling as one does, especially if one is a writer, with uh, financial difficulties. Very excited to have Andrew Sean Greer on The Other People Show. That conversation is coming up in just a bit. Today's episode is brought to you by Red Hen Press, publisher of the debut story collection, If I Were the Ocean, I'd Carry You Home by Peter Sue. This collection captures the essence of surviving in a life set adrift. Children and young people navigate a world where the presence of violence and death rear themselves in everyday places. Vegas casinos, birthday parties, church services, sunny days at the beach. Each story in If I Were the Ocean, I'd Carry You Home is a meditation on living in a world that is not made for us. The pervasive fear, the adaptations, the unexpected longings. This is a gripping debut. Once again, it is called If I Were the Ocean, I'd Carry You Home by Peter Sue, available from Red Hen Press. So if you are new to The Other People Show, if this is the first time you've ever heard it, I just want to welcome you and to give you a few details. The show has been around a while. It launched back in 2011, almost 800 episodes at this point and counting. New episodes go live every Wednesday, in-depth interviews with today's leading writers. You can find the show on the internet at otherppl.com. You can also follow the show on social media. The handle on Twitter is at otherppl. And the handle on Instagram is at otherppl.podcast. You can watch the show on YouTube now. The Other People Podcast has long had a YouTube channel, but only recently have I started featuring video of these interviews. So if you want to watch the show, just go track the show down on YouTube. It has its own channel. Search for it by name, Other PPL with Brad Listy. And when you find the channel, hit the subscribe button. It's free. Also, I do an email newsletter. Are you aware of this? It's free. It goes out once a week. It is essentially an enumerated list. I let you know about the latest episode of the show, and I also share links to some things that I've been reading and finding interesting. It's like nine things every week in a list. It's not complicated. It's straightforward. Hopefully, it's useful and interesting, and I only do one a week. I'm not going to bury you in emails. So, If you want to sign up for the newsletter, again, it's free. You can do that at the show's website, otherppl.com. You can also sign up for the newsletter at my website, bradlisty.com. It's the same newsletter in both places. The Other People podcast is offered freely. So the entire archive, almost 800 of these conversations at this point, all of them are made available to listeners free of charge in the hopes that regular listeners or people who find this show helpful will support it. So if you are out there and you listen regularly, or if you're listening and getting a lot from it and you want to show your support, you can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash other PPL pod. You can support this show for as little as $1 a month. I've tried to make it easy and accommodating for people at all budget levels. So $1 a month, three, five, 10, 20, whatever you can afford. And as you move up the scale, you can get stuff. You can get merch. You can get a t-shirt, a coffee mug, a tote bag. You can get a book club subscription. 
I will write you a postcard, all that stuff at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. If you have feedback for me, if you would like to reach out, the email address for this show is letters at other PPL.com. You can also DM the show on social. I will probably get those, but the most reliable way to get me is to email the show letters at other PPL.com. Last but not least, I have a novel out. It published earlier this year. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It is available in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook, so if you want to read my novel, you can do that. Once again, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So my guest today is Andrew Sean Greer, Pulitzer Prize winner. His new novel, Less is Lost, is a New York Times bestseller, and it is available right now from Little Brown. I am honored and delighted to have him here on the show for the first time to talk about his life and work and his fine new book. Here he is, folks. This is Andrew Sean Greer. And his new novel, One More Time, is called Less is Lost. I have one advantage over stand-up comedians in which that I can keep changing it until the last minute, you know? But I have the disadvantage is I have no audience. I have just me to decide whether it's funny or not. And that, and of course it stops being funny after the first couple reads. And so you just have to remember that you thought it was funny the first time. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think not having the audience in a way is kind of great. You don't get to watch them read and not laugh if that were to happen. I, I did. Well, I got to do it the other day. I was on a plane and my seatmate, I was in the window. He was in the middle seat and he brought out my book and started to read it. And I didn't say anything because I thought, oh, let's see if he laughs. <laughs> he didn't. No. <laughs> well, OK, wait. 
then he put it away for a little while and played a video game. And then I, then I told him I was the author of the book. <laughs> I was going to say, that would be pretty hard to resist. But I have never, like I've heard of people being on the subway and seeing somebody. But to have your seatmate who is a captive for, I don't know how long the flight was. Five that hours. That had to be in a... <laughs> okay so what was the arc of this conversation and relationship like well how did how did this end like when you get off the plane are you like you know are there hugs what's happening well it was i first i sat down he pulled out his uh his kindle and i put on instagram what should i do should i talk with this guy and (laughs) then i had to turn off my phone and I was like, you know what? It's like a five-hour flight. If I say something now, then it's super weird for five hours. Right. Like, he can't read the book. Um, and we don't have that much to talk about after a couple minutes. I was like, I will do it at the end. But meanwhile, I, had, I got to listen to him. He did giggle a little when reading the book. That was nice. But for a while, I was like, man, that's a good part you're reading. I thought that was funny. But he was really overwhelmed when I told him that I was the author because it's such a weird thing to experience. And Les was his favorite book. And so he just bought this one to read and he was a little overwhelmed meeting me. My intro was, I don't want to bother you or freak you out, dot, dot, dot. (laughs) It did freak him out. I can imagine. What are the odds of that? That seems like like incredibly long odds. But uh, I think that having had the success that Les had to write a follow-up that is a sequel is a bold choice. And there was, like, as I was researching, I learned that there was some resistance from your agent, no? Oh, yeah. She she denies this, but she's wrong. She said that, she said that I couldn't write a sequel to a Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, that it isn't done. And, um, and I wasn't really sure what I was writing yet, so I took that as a signal, like, don't even think about it. And so I didn't. I mean, I worked on another book for a long time, wrote about uh, 100 pages that were so bad that I went into the kind of panic I go to when I'm taking the wrong direction from a book. And the way I always come out is to have to accept a terrible truth, which is that the book is something different than I planned. And it was that it was a sequel, you know? It was... Or a follow-up, I meant to say, because it's self-contained. You can totally read it as it is. And I knew, I was like, God, I'm told not to do it. But if there's anything you get to do after you win a big prize, it's write whatever you want now. So I went with that. Well, you know, I think that it's comforting to hear you talk about the creative process being messy in that way. Because I think it's fairly common to write 100 or 200 or even more pages of a book thinking that you're on one track and then to realize that it's not working. This is something that I think a lot of writers are traumatized by, <laughs> maybe all writers, but I think it's, it's helpful to know how normal it is. I think it's abnormal for it to be the other way where you just like know from the start exactly what you're doing and you follow a linear path up to the mountaintop, like to write a bunch of pages that ultimately don't make the cut or ultimately are completely at odds with the finished product. This is, this is how it usually looks, right? For me, I do have writer friends who they have the idea that they outline it and they write it out in that order. And then they're like, done, little polishing. That is not my experience with it. And I, not only at the beginning, but constantly through the book, there are 
hundreds of pages that I, I never put in the book. I'm just wandering, finding my way through because I don't outline it. I stopped outlining it. I found it became a better book if I just wandered my way through and, and went through the trauma of throwing things away in order to find what the book really needed to be. Is this something that you've been doing your whole career or is this like a new development? Because it makes sense to me that n people who don't really outline, like maybe you sketch a few things down or put some notes down on paper, but you're not really building a complete framework for the novel or a plan. It makes sense to me that if that's the course you take that you might write 100 or 200 pages that ultimately don't work. Is this how you've always done it or is this a change? Well, it's a change, but not a recent one. I think I found out after it was my third book called The Confessions of Max Tivoli, and I made a whole outline, and I meant it to be this 500-page novel in Victorian prose going over 60 years about a man who ages backwards. And I wrote about 350 pages and had, then I had my nervous breakdown. <laughs> and it was harder because I it not only meant... I had to face the truth that the first 200 pages were not the book. And the book only became, started on page 200. Therefore, it was a different shape of book. And therefore, I had to throw away my whole outline. And that was harder to do. I was more, I, I'm very resistant to changing plans as a person. So I think I, I then changed my method so that it wouldn't um, be in conflict with my personality as much by being more loosey-goosey, which is not normal to me. <laughs> I'm not that kind of guy. But to force myself to to wander in. And, and once I... I used to think it was ridiculous, writers who would write things on index cards, not knowing where they went in the book. Or Nabokov, who would say he worked on a book like a crossword puzzle. He'd fill in the parts that he knew, and they would connect, and it would solve the whole thing. But that is now exactly how I do it. Interesting. You know, I just talked to Elizabeth Strout, who writes that way, just kind of writes in scenes and then figures out really? the connection. Okay. Yeah. That's figures out the connections after the fact. And that, that brought me some comfort because I'm pretty messy in my process too. And I share with you this tendency to write a bunch of stuff that ultimately I have to trash. And it is, you know, speaking of, as somebody who also maybe is pretty orderly, I don't know. I'm a creature of habit. I think writers often are. When you get to that place where you're 200 pages in or 100 pages in and you start to go, oh my God, it's not working or I've got to go in a completely different direction. It sucks to have to admit to yourself that you have to throw away a bunch of writing. I don't want to say it's all for naught because every little step that you take leads you ultimately you know, to your finished product. But I don't know. It's uh, it's exhausting. It feels like it's all for naught when you're when you're lying on the couch with a you know, with a hand like this for a week, wondering what now because you don't have the replacement yet. You just have the the right. the void, and it's such an awful feeling. But as time goes on, I have ta I've taught myself that it's worth it. You know. If I realize I have to change everything and I'm resistant to it, I don't want to do it, and then I have a talk with myself and I think, how long is it going to take, Andy? A month of work to reshape the whole book and then start filling it in again? A month of work? You're not willing to do that when you know it makes the book better? That seems and so once I realize how long it will actually take, even though the, the work is hard, 
to um, you know put it in a different order or whatever it is or or for me for this for less is lost it was to remove two chapters one was in the in the midwest one was in the northwest which not just meant not just taking those out but everything that's in those chapters that ties into the whole book has to go somewhere else you know that was awful to to realize but it was only actually a week of work hmm. it's worth it yeah and you know yeah. And I think it's like, sometimes there's just a need to take some time off or let things suck for a week. And then like, yeah. you I, you know, maybe yeah. your experience is different, but in my experience, like you, you hit like a, a dead end or what seems like a dead end with a book. And if you just keep grinding, eventually you get to a day where things start to move again. Like a part of it is just kind of seeing it through and it can feel... Why does it feel like such an insurmountable obstacle in moments when it's really not? Like you say, it's a week of work or a month of work. We're but so it, dramatic. It, but it is, it's just, I'm trying to think of a metaphor of what, of what it's like. It's like being blindfolded at some terrible party where they're like, it's hot coals, you'll be fine, and you don't want to do it. And you're like, I'm sure I'll be fine. <laughs> You know, there's tequila at the end, only there's not necessarily tequila at the end of, of that week of work. But it just, you don't want to do it. <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't know if you're like me, but if I, for some reason, um, have lost like an hour of, of work, it's not like, like I think, oh, well, it was just an hour of work. I'm sure it can be. I will spend two hours trying to find the backup of the hour of work because I don't want to do it again. <laughs> Yes. You know? No, I'm the, I'm the same way. I'm the same way. And it's amazing, too, how I can give my, I mean, everybody does this, but I can give myself tasks and imbue them with all of this importance. And really what I'm doing is avoiding the work that I actually should be doing or, you know, getting caught up in research or whatever it is. Uh, oh, yeah. I don't know why there's so much internal resistance, but it does feel good once you actually get the work done. Uh, and, it's, you know, and it does feel good when it's going well. Yeah. I mean, that's, for me, it's definitely the daily payoff of, of at the end of, you know, by dinner time or bef hopefully before I feel like, all right, I did, I did enough. <laughs> Do you have a regimen that you try to stick to? Like, I know everybody kind of does it differently or has their way, but are you a word count guy? Are you an hours guy? Do you work every day? What do you do? It depends. I'm not consistent. I try, I think when I'm working best, I'm doing word count just because it gives me a metric to measure my progress by. And I can't lie. You know what I'm saying? That number doesn't lie. So I try to do that maybe when I really know where I'm going. But the problem is that in early stages of a project, it's so messy, like we were just talking about, that I have to do a lot of thinking. I'm trying to figure out what the book is. That, that's where I am right now. So it's if I start to, do, to use word count as my metric, I feel like every day just feels like failure. <laughs> so I try to go easy on myself in that sense. Do you know what I'm saying? Like I, I, sometimes it's useful and other times I think it's better to just log in, do the work for a few hours, you know, or two or two to four hours is usually what I can muster and then try again tomorrow. That all sounds familiar to me. I think, I mean, I, I, I do word count for the majority of it, 3000 words a day. Is that no 1000 words a day? It's like three pages. Whatever. Oh, phew. Okay. Yeah. 1,000. Yeah. Yeah. 3,000. No way. Okay. Um, 
And uh, and then I but then I also have another thing I started during the pandemic, which was that I've been waking up really early and then I have either an hour or two where I'm not allowed to go online in any way. And I am allowed to just read or take notes or go for a walk or certainly write might be a nice thing to do. But I'm very low pressure. The whole idea is to not look at the news or my emails and 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 not lose the day because um, I I spent most of the, the pandemic in, in Italy, in Milan, where I live with my boyfriend part of the time. And uh, the first news of the day would be awful because it's everything that happened after I went to bed. And then mm. there would be no news for like six hours because we were so far ahead. So if I looked at the news, I would be too wrapped up in trying to figure out what happened last night. But it, I couldn't change it, you know. So I might as well look at it around noon <laughs> when the, 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 the New York Times starts publishing again online. You know, then I wouldn't be waiting for, for the next part of the story. So I, that's why I, I, I started that. But I really like it because it also allows me just to read a book as part of the writing, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, what kind of, I mean, do you, can you point to tangible outcomes or benefits from that two hour window of like just being that offlineness and that loose set of um, parameters that you give yourself? I would say I would get definitely half the writing done in that first hour or two hours, certainly, because I hadn't rearranged the stock sock drawer, decided what to make for dinner or, try, you know, like all took taking the dog out. Like I didn't have all of that was was gone. I just went from dream state to a cup of coffee to the book um, or the reading. And if I'm doing the reading, I'm not thinking like, oh, I, I need to be a good person and read books. I'm thinking, is there anything in this book that connects to what I'm working on? It just seems like I wake up in the in the book instead of waking up in the world. I love to read in the morning. I, I, you know, a lot of people read before bed. I fall asleep or I just don't have the brain for it because I'm so tired from the day. But if I read in the morning, that is the best to me. Yeah, I think I have to get back in the habit. But the problem is now I'm on the West Coast where I wake up and I know there are emails that I have to answer right now. Oh, right. Because of the East, like East Coast time and stuff. Yeah. And also my boyfriend is nine hours ahead of me. So he's like, hi, what are you doing? Like, buongiorno. <laughs> so I have to, you know, I need to talk to him. <laughs> so wait, how does this work? You live in San Francisco some of the time and then just go over to Italy. What is it? Is it, is it uh, structured or is it just kind of back and forth loose? It's a little unstructured. It depends on, I have an ex-husband I share this apartment with about what when he needs to be here and then when I, I need to be here for book tour. So I'm in, I'm here in San Francisco, but, and then, uh, my, uh, my partner in Italy needs to be there cause he's finishing a book in Italian. And so we, he needs to be in contact with his publisher there and, and stuff, but we just are trying to throw it together as best we can. Yeah. That sounds great though. I feel like I envy people who have the ability to live in more than one country, like on a regular basis, just as a matter of perspective, especially, I'm thinking especially as an American in light of what the past few years have entailed, you know, that must have lent you, did it give you like a safety 
valve or like an out? Like, was it helpful? It feels like it might be helpful to get out. <laughs> oh, it's it's great. It's great because, first of all, you can wake up and not worry about not reading the news because nothing's happened yet. So you're not a bad person. Um, and then also there's the distance of like, you know, here in the United States, my my progressive friends get really worked up about their news cycle of like what Marjorie Taylor Greene is talking about. You know, she was on the front right. page of the New York Times about the problem of Marjorie Taylor Greene. But then when you go to the United to Italy, they don't know who that is because she's just one representative in the House of Representatives. She has no actual power. I don't even think she's on committees. So why are we talking about her? When, and you realize that's not an important person. I don't have to think about that person. Or, you know, Matt Gates or all these people who are or, you know, what's going to happen with, what is his name, Madison Croft? Anyway, who cares about those people? They don't, I, I see Cough, articles. Cawthorn. Yeah, he's not even, he didn't win re-election. So why are we writing articles about him? You know, it's just because he's um, incendiary. And that doesn't, I, I can see it from Italy that it is not worth reading about. Because Italy has its own incendiary personalities that, that Americans don't know about or read about. So it starts to clarify what's actually important to talk about and the, the italians they're fascinated by trump but they're not following his every receipt you know the way we are that's a boring story to them they've got their own they've got berlusconi to think of you know like they've got their own problems and it, you realize every country has its own tiny conversation topics that are not of any interest <laughs> to other people so if you're having like a general if you think about like a, a dinner party conversation with people from a lot of countries you wouldn't talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene or maybe even Maloney in Italy. People won't know that. So instead, you have to talk about books. Mm. Yeah. So that's interesting to hear you say that because I read that one of the things or one of the guiding principles for you in writing Less is Lost was a desire to write about the United States, to write about your country or you know your particular vantage on it. And I think that, like a lot of us, you were working from this sense of not, of, of realization of like, wow, I don't understand this place. Uh, I think a lot of us have felt that these past few years, like a destabilizing sense of like, wait, I thought I had a handle on this, and now I really don't think that I do. Like, is that accurate, first of all? Yeah, yeah, that was... That was the feeling in 2016, and there were definitely friends of mine who accused me of not understanding the country very well. And I'm, I am, maybe I'm wrong is a is a sort of baseline temperament for me. I don't mind considering the idea I might be wrong. I I'm I guess I'm a little flexible that way because I think I'm a writer. I don't have, we don't have to be right. You know, we just have to put down a story. So it led to this book because I was I did my research for it before the pandemic and rented a camper van and went three weeks in the Southwest and three weeks in the deep South and just went to tiny towns and bars and diners and talked to people and wrote down all the details to try to uh, surprise myself. Because of course I was wrong about every one of those places. I didn't know anything about them. And that was humbling. And that was my approach to it. I didn't go to look for political opinions or look for trouble or to I wasn't that wasn't my purpose you know I'm a I'm a novelist I'm trying to get exactly what brand of cigarette 
is being put out in the ashtray. Like, that's what I went for. And that's all in the book. There's no detail that it isn't from one of my notebooks. But I made up all the people. Almost all. <laughs> so that's interesting. When you set out on these on these road trips, there were, there were two of them. The was the was the idea I'm going to go out and find a book in this, or was it more just like I want to find find out what I'm missing about the country, and maybe there will be a book. Do you know what I'm saying? How explicitly literary were the trips? It was it was explicit, and I mean the first they were a year apart. So for the first one, I went. They were combined, and they were combined. The first was to find out what I didn't understand about the country, but I can only reconcile writing off the, the camper van on my taxes if I'm also thinking about it as a, as a book, but I made a mistake on the first time. I invited friends to join me along the way because I thought it would be more fun that way, and it sure was, but it meant I wasn't taking enough notes because I was not paying attention. I think it has, for me, I have to be very much alone and to start noticing what's really around me. And so in the deep South, I went alone. Okay. And that this mirrors uh, the trip that Arthur Les takes in Less is Lost. Uh, he goes on a huge journey across America that is literary in nature. He's profiling an author named HHH. <laughs> Mandern, uh, and then he is in the Deep South where a drama troupe is performing uh, an adaptation of his work. And I think that was the section of the book that I found most interesting because we have a, a gay male protagonist in the Deep South. Like that's a great fish out of water setup. And I'm curious about that experience because I think like the experience that you had personally that kind of was a, a research trip because I think for a lot of people listening or people who might imagine what it would be like for a gay man to be in a camper van traveling through the American Deep South, particularly against the, the backdrop of the history that we've just lived through, like you can wonder what that would be like. like. Can you talk a little bit about how that experience either lived up to or subverted your expectations? Well, it, it did both in, in that... There was just a lot of funny nonsense that happened that I hadn't really thought about, like the danger of alligators in uh, in <laughs> Alabama. I hadn't thought there would be alligators in Alabama. And there was, in fact, a reader wrote to me and said, alligators don't exist below this. And I was like, you were wrong. <laughs> I saw them right at, right at, at um, so wrong again. But the the funny preconception that I had, because I think I used to live in a rural area in Montana, not the South, but pretty rural for years. And I thought I understood what it was like to be like the only gay man in town and uh, go into a rough bar. And I knew how to sit at the bar and not talk to anyone and what to order. And uh, so I did that in the South, but the world's changed in those 30 years since I did that. And I realized like, Actually, everyone knew I was gay because they'd met gay people before or, you know, it was a new, a different world. So there was no leaning on the bar and saying, I'll have the Bud Light man with a whiskey shot like that didn't <laughs> cover anything because um, they knew exactly what was going on with me and that there were queer people all over that were out. You know, there I just hadn't I had that was my biggest preconception was that 
I would be the only gay person around, but I wasn't. They would be like a, a two women running, I put it in the book, like a Panino Cafe in a tiny rural place in Alabama, both with their heads shaved, like super, you know, super lesbian. And uh, that was the truth of that town, you know, and that was all over the place. It was really interesting to me. And I'm not saying that they all had a great time. You know, those women, I talked to them and one of them, she said she tried all her life to get out of that town. And she did, met this other woman and then her mother got sick and she had to come back and take care of her. So they started up a cafe. You know, it's not that they were happy there, hmm. but, but, you know, life brought them, life brought them back. That, so that was interesting. I never felt in danger, but then... I was going in as a very neutral presence because I was there to collect data. And so I wasn't coming in to start a drag show in a dive bar. <laughs> I was coming in <laughs> to buy everyone a round of buds and just listen to their stories. And I think that was, um, that was okay with people. Did you leave the experience with more clarity or was there a sense of more abstraction? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, did you come out and go, okay, I got a handle on this? Or did you come out saying, what I'm clear about is that I just don't have a handle on this and that the country is a lot, like things are a lot more complex maybe than it can seem online, for example. Yeah, no, uh, definitely more complex. I and, mean, you know, I, I crossed, um, you know, seven very different states, you know, I think to someone in Washington state, um, Alabama and Mississippi might seem like identical places, but they're not. And, and, and of course I know that because Washington state and Oregon, they're clear that they're not similar, <laughs> but to someone in Georgia, they sure seem like they must be. There's barely anybody there. But also I feel like it was my job to not ever come to a conclusion, to keep my mind open to um, surprises and to not come out with a hot take on on places, but to come out with uh, a lot of doubt about myself and and about the country, it did. It was sad. It did make me grieve a lot. Um, how we're torn apart, and wonder how we ever decided to come together in the first place. And I saw a lot of people. This doesn't sound like a very comic conversation we're having right now, but I, I met a lot of people. Their life stories were very painful, and um, they were suffering a great deal. I was going to say, I have family roots in the South. And when I'm down there, just driving around, looking out, it's impossible for me not to think of uh, American history and the horrors that took place. Like there's a lot of suffering in the soil down there. I guess there's suffering in the soil everywhere, but you know what I'm saying? Like did you, you must have had that on your mind as well, moving through the South. I definitely did. I just felt... You know, you go up the Natchez Trace and it's so beautiful. And all you, all I could think was awful things. I can feel that awful things happened here. And then later you read, oh, the Natchez Trace is actually the road where enslaved people walked from Alexandria, Virginia, all the way down to Natchez where they'd be sold. That's what that is. And you could feel it. I could feel it. Awful things happened everywhere. But the further east you go in America, the more awful things have happened. And it... You know, part of that was that I decided I had to write, I had to visit some former plantations and see if I could put something in the book because I thought, I this is on my mind so much, I have to get it in the book. And it's sure not a funny 
experience. I went to three different old plantations and the last one I went to was such an interesting experience and I discovered what was funny was the total panic of me and the other white people about how we were supposed to respond to it. And that's in the book. Mm. You know, that the the race panic in in me, you know, of 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 trying to find my comfortable place to stand and there was no comfortable place to stand. I just, you know, I just talked to Jerry Stoll on this show about a month ago and he wrote a book about like a memoir about taking a tour of major Holocaust sites. You know, see, he's at all these concentration camps and he described a very similar dynamic where he could notice it in himself, but he could also notice it in, in others where everyone's trying to like kind of walk off to be on their own just a few feet away to like have a moment and to seem like they're quietly reflecting. It's just this weird discomfort of not knowing what the right thing to do is at the same time. And I don't think, well, I guess there's some of this too, even at like Auschwitz or whatever, you know, is uh, I've been in the South and maybe things have changed, but I, I sort of doubt it. Um, at least not a hundred percent change is that these, these plantations, you can like rent them out for weddings. You can, uh, people take selfies and they have like, I don't know, bachelorette parties and stuff. It seems totally, totally gross and inappropriate. Like we got to stop this. These places should either be raised or they should be, uh, you know, memorials or like museums, you know, but we can't be using them for social functions. Like, did you see some of that too? Uh, that is clearly changing because of social media, but I saw three kinds. I only went to three. Um, the first one I went to was like what you're talking about. There's a big Christmas celebration. The The cabins for the enslaved people disappeared long, long ago and were never preserved. And there's just the big house and um, it's candles and Christmas and excitement. And then the second one I went to, the Whitney Plantation in Louisiana, is called Whitney Plantation, The Story of Slavery. And you do not go in the big house because they tell you there were only about five or six of those people and there were hundreds of people brought here and enslaved to work the sugar fields and we're going to talk about them and it it is like an Auschwitz experience there's memorials there's the names of every person who worked there and 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 there is the intense feeling of the people who are visiting of I'm I'm here I'm understanding and I'm going to have a special moment and and to feel I'm on the right side of of this and then the third one I went to was Frogmore Plantation in Arkansas. And the first part of it was, it's, I wrote it down in the book almost exactly like it happened, was a, a white woman giving us a speech in a cabin about cotton and where it comes from and like one of those tedious film strips from, from school. And then we went into another log cabin and she said, now you're going to watch a film and watch a film that was really historically accurate about the history of enslavement in America and really shocking. And uh, the lights went up and then there was a black woman standing there who's like, well, now I'm going to take you on a tour of where we used to live. And she went out. The, the house where the planter used to live had burned down two months ago. Someone had burned it down. <laughs> Arson. She's like, who cares about that? I'm going to tell you, here we are at the storehouse and you used to give us two pounds of hog every month and this amount of corn grain in second person to us six white people standing there. And there was no way out of understanding what she was communicating. It wasn't the distance of, of a museum of that happened and I feel bad about it. It wasn't the distance of Scarlett O'Hara. It was, this is what you did to us. And 
what I found funny was all of us freaked out <laughs> because we had expected the film strip cotton kind of trip. A lot of people expected it to be like a like a like you're saying, like a bridal party celebration of plantation life. And then we got taken on a very different ride and it was fantastic. I mean, I freaked out too because I wanted to be the good liberal, but there was no way out of what she was talking about. And I thought it was it was uh, amazing. Yeah, there's got to be. These should be difficult places to be. They yeah. shouldn't be. I mean, that's it. That's ugly history. And I want to have you read uh, a, a short excerpt from your book because uh, I want listeners who haven't had a chance to read to get a sense of Arthur Less and the comedic voice at work on the page here. And then, uh, you know, we can discuss once you're done. So if you, if you wouldn't mind reading. Sure. I mean, I, what I want to say is we're moving from really hard topics that doesn't sound like this would be a comedic novel at all. But I want to point out that for me, that's exactly where comedy comes from, is like the thing you're terrified of that haunts you. Like if you can address it directly and make fun of myself in it, then I feel like I, I can get through it. And... Um, and actually what I'm going to read is about Arthur Les being a bad gay is, is sort of something that haunts me, but I made it into something that I find, I find really funny. Here we go. Is Arthur Les a bad gay? He's certainly bad at it. Let us examine this more closely. There's plenty of time while we wait for H.H.H. Mandarin to arrive. When he moved to New York after college in the 80s, Arthur Les tried his hardest to be a good gay. He joined a gym that turned out to be a sex dungeon. He joined a political party that turned out to believe a conspiracy theory about government health clinics. He joined a German language society that turned out to be a sex dungeon. He joined a book group that turned out to be only for a political party. He joined a role-playing game club that turned out to be a sex dungeon. He joined a sex dungeon that turned out to be a government health clinic. It was all so confusing. But what confused him most was how sexually free every man was. Over and over, Les was told that he needed to loosen up. He was certain this was true. But how had absolutely everybody else loosened up and not him? It seems statistically impossible that so many men, particularly so many ordinary, clean-cut American men, could feel so carefree about sex. You couldn't shake your past just like that, could you? An Amish farmer, for instance, couldn't wake up one morning as a creditable NASCAR driver. That would take years if it was even possible. And it was not as if these men were carefree across the board, quite the opposite. They remained uptight in so many other familiar ways about music, dry cleaning, cheese spreads, place settings, skin care, ways that would have pleased their mothers or even grandmothers. But when it came to sex, well, welcome to the monkey house. Les could not believe it. Had they all taken some drug his doctor would not prescribe? Were there free night classes he had not attended? Were the other unliberated men all trapped in a boat offshore? In a sex dungeon? Slowly, the impossible dawned on him, and with terror he was forced to look deep within himself as we all someday must, and ask, am I the only frigid homosexual in New York? It turned out he was, <laughs> so he left. So, bad gay? Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. 
What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. All right. So I want to, this is is something that I'm familiar with in a observational sense or a, a passing sense. I've had, you know, friends of mine through the years in Los Angeles use this term, bad gay. And I also have heard stories especially among gay men about like the, the looseness or like the, you know, just how much sex people are having and have thought to myself like, damn, you know, like this is, this is wild, you know, like I, I think it's something has to do with like guys, you know, guys being, I don't know, just less inhibited or having like, especially young men, like having like super high sex drive and just, it feels like anything goes. And it's funny to me and interesting to me to hear Les's perspective of being like, whoa, you know, like, can we tap the brakes here? This is, <laughs> this is a lot to, this is a lot to process. Like, I guess like uh, a place to start would be like, what, what is a bad gay? Uh, like, do you even know? Maybe, maybe this is the question. I mean, I think a lot of, you could be a bad gay by not participating in the, in the urban gay world or be a bad gay by doing something politically counter to the movement or you could i mean i mostly i think jokingly it's like it would be something like what are you doing for for pride and someone's saying like oh i'm gonna i'm when is that i'm gonna go to my mother's barbecue and they would say you're a bad gay because you're not going because you need to participate in the in the thing um or i think if i told someone that i don't own a leather harness they would say i'm a bad gay because we all have to own them Apparently, I see them everywhere. And I'm like, everyone's into leather? How is everybody into leather? It can't be. It's not a kink yeah. if everybody's into it. Right, right. There's all this like kind of uh, like herd mentality or whatever. And it's, I think too, like, I mean, it could be any context in any group. You know, you're in a group and it, like, it feels like uh, if, if everybody's doing it, it, you know, then this must just be the norm. And I think to be somebody who is writerly in temperament maybe, you might be more inclined to slow down and be analytical and to question or to just be like maybe socially maladaptive. <laughs> that tends to be a, a writerly tendency. Too. That's a but lot of it. Do you feel like you're a bad gay? Is this something you've internalized? Yeah. I mean, I have been accused of being a bad gay. It was specifically about a novel I wrote in which there's a terrible trope that I have been well aware of since college of um, gay male literature where the character kills himself at the end. Like that is has been what has always happened in literature and and some plays in the first part of the 20th century. And we all know that we don't do that. But I had a novel where I had someone do that. And I just felt like the year was 1920 and that is how that would end. And I I got accused by a, a writer I respect very much literally being a bad gay. And I understood what they meant and I stood by my choice. I was like, that is what had to happen in that novel. I understand. And it was a weird, I knew when I wrote it, what I was doing. I knew that I was making a choice that went against uh, the literary critical um, ideas that I believed in. But then there's a moment when you're writing a book where you think this is what this happens in this book. And I'm more committed to the book, which you have to be. And um, I survived it. <laughs> uh, but it did make me think a lot about where I belonged in literature and where I belonged in society. I, you can get a sense in that there's a moment where Arthur Lex goes into a, what, what you might call a redneck bar in Alabama, and he compares it to the first time he went into a gay bar 
that the terror, um, the unfriendliness, the same songs on the jukebox, the same terrible beer being served. I mean, I for me, they, they I remember them being the same. It wasn't welcome home. It was, who are you? And I feel that sensation most bars I go into. I'm very comfortable with that sensation, but I don't need to... But I, unfortunately, I don't get it from a gay bar when I go in and think, ah, oh, at last I'm safe. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny. I always feel, what I have said through the years is for whatever reason, whenever I'm in a bar, I'm the guy who, when he goes to the bar, especially if it's crowded, I'm the guy who the bartender sees last. I take it yeah. so personally. I probably shouldn't, but like for whatever reason, like I'm there, I have my money, other people are there and like, I'm invisible. I have. I must just look like a you know a norm, or I don't know what it is. But the bartender never <laughs> sees me, and uh, I don't know. It's never entirely comfortable. I don't know what that is or why it happens, but it seems to be the case for me. You know, the last bar. I, actually, I went in with a bunch of gay friends. They took me to a bar called the Rat Trap, which was definitely a straight bar. Like it was um, like ugly inside. The guy was wearing like insane clown posse makeup the bartender um <laughs> there were snacks on the bar that had mouse traps inside them so if you tried to get some cheese it's you would get a mouse trap on you like it was an aggressively like it was an aggressive bar and we loved it because we understood they're having the same experience we are they don't feel they fit into society and they're wearing this this aggressive costume but they were super nice to us you know because we weren't coming in and being being like, we're fabulous. What is this place? We were like, oh, my God, we get you. <laughs> I can get a cheese it because I know how to get around the mousetrap. Like we were on the same. And that felt that's the most comfortable I felt in a place like that in a while, which is so weird because it's it's just like when you meet someone who's all tattooed, they're actually a really sensitive person. They're not. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know they're 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 giving off a vibe of violence but they they almost never are it's odd yeah i like that though that's there's something sweet and reassuring whenever you're in a situation like that where you're interacting with people who might on the surface seem to be coming at life from a, a much different angle than you are and maybe they are but that you have that kind of common ground or there there's some sort of similarity psychologically that's at work that bonds you in maybe unexpected ways it's lovely when that happens yeah it was unexpected and <laughs> well someone had already a friend of mine had already been there he's like you're gonna love this place not to make fun of it but to be part of it it's why i mean i only really like i don't like fancy bars i like dive bars because i i like the fact that i don't belong there is comfortable to me but the not belonging in a fancy bar feels like uh, ugly and expensive. <laughs> what about what about gay bars? Do you like? I mean, do you like gay bars, or do you do you specifically like to go to like dive bars that don't have like maybe an explicit orientation attached to them? Well, I like the ones in San Francisco that are really anybody anything goes. Anyone in here? I have a friend who owns a bar in San Francisco, and so of course I like to go there because everyone likes it when the bartender knows you and friends come in who also, and that bar could be anything at any hour. I think that going to gay dance clubs is way more fun in my experience than going to straight 
dance, like a place where there's dancing happening. Like that is where I will, I mean, gay bar, straight bar, whatever you want to call it, like maybe like either place you could find um, a, a good experience. But places where there are straight guys dancing, trying to meet straight girls, not as fun as being in a gay dance club. I agree because there's a there's a there's a weird gender thing happens and the the straight guys are guarding the women like basketball or something and so it feels not very liberated. It feels like there's um I can't figure out what's going on and sometimes I have to tell them I'm gay. You don't have to guard me. <laughs> yeah, but I feel like generally speaking, you go into one of these clubs and straight guys are kind of like in like they're trying to like meet girls and it seems sort of awkward and even predatory at times. And I have found that it's just more fun. People are just having more fun. They're actually dancing and I don't know. I just feel like it's a superior experience. Not that I go out to gay dance clubs all that much or dance clubs in general, but when I have- Well, none of us have for a little while. Well, I want to talk to you about um, like, like decisions. Like you mentioned earlier, committing to creative choices that you made and kind of sticking with the book, like the book that you were referencing with respect to the gay character committing suicide at the end, which, yeah. you know, you viewed, I think correctly, was appropriate in the, in historical context and meeting resistance to that, but kind of sticking to your guns. And this is a theme I think that's followed you throughout your career and which has served you well. And in particular, I want to talk about your book, Less, the, which precedes Less is Lost and which won the Pulitzer Prize, I believe, in 2018, where your editor, I think, was having some trouble with the end of the book and was giving you notes and was saying, you know, like we think that maybe it needs to end here instead of there or something along these lines. And rather than change the ending, which you felt strongly about, you instead changed the rest of the book so that the ending felt justified. Is that accurate? That That is accurate. I think it's it comes from being old enough to have either confidence or, or absolutely nothing to lose. You know, there's a certain point where you realize if this book does badly, they will blame only me. So I'm not going to do it anybody else's way. So if it, if I, I want it, if it's going to do badly, I want it to be exactly the book I want that does badly. <laughs> so I was not open yeah. to pleasing other people because I learned the hard way that they don't say like, it's my fault. I shouldn't have told you to change the ending. That's why the book didn't sell. No one says that. <laughs> they say, I'm sorry, we can't take your next book because the last one didn't sell. So I, I was over um, trying to please them on cover or, or, or title or anything on, by the time Les came around. And it was also my, a dear friend of mine who's a great writer, Daniel Handler, who's the Lemony Snicket alias. Sure. Um, or the other way around. I've talked, to, I've talked to Daniel on this show. Have you talked to him? Maybe, I mean, I don't know if he told you this, but he, he gave me advice on a long time ago, which he said, like, we think the editor is the doctor, but the, the editor's not the doctor. They're the patient. You're the doctor, the writer. The patient tells you where it hurts, but you don't listen to their diagnosis. You... Because what do they know? Um, you figure out, you try to diagnose it in, in various ways, um, but you, you have to get out of your head what they're saying to you about how to solve it. Because the only thing they're going to say is, is, is sort of the layman's, you know, they'll say get rid of it, make it more normal. They'll try to make it more like something they understand. 
and that's always the wrong thing to do. The thing to do is to commit to what's strange about it. The thing that's sticking out that they want to lop off, you have to make everything else match that because otherwise, because that's the thing that's you about the book. That's the thing that's new and interesting. And otherwise it becomes like a mediocre book. So you have to take that chance. And I, I did, yeah. I, kept I think that's really wise advice. I, I think that's wise advice and I think you know, a couple things come to mind. First of all, like if anybody's mistakes are going to live in the book for, you know, quote unquote eternity, they, they should be the authors, <laughs> right? I mean, uh, we put all this time into it. But I think that a lot of us, myself included, you know, I'm sensitive to feedback. Like if somebody reads a stack of pages I've given them and they have a big problem with the end, for example, it's hard to, res it's hard not to like react I don't want to use the word panic, but to, just to react strongly, you know, to try to ameliorate that. And you can screw up a book by overreacting. And so I think the handler advice and the way that you approached it with less is instructive where you tried to make the rest of the book justify the end that you felt strongly about. And you had the confidence or like you say, the I don't give a shit <laughs> kind of attitude, or you're at a place where you're just like, I got nothing to lose. I'm going to stick to my guns because I, I know internally I feel strongly about it. You have to ultimately listen to yourself, right? Like nobody knows your work better than you do. Yeah, no one can see the thing that's in your head. You barely can. And so and I, I'm a, a great example because my first drafts are really unreadable. No one knows exactly what I'm talking about. For me, I'm like, got it, nailed it, publish it. And only from hearing from from my agent, she'll say something like, I'm glad to see you putting ink on paper. You know, like something so bland that I understood that the book doesn't even make sense. And I try to, Daniel Hanner's one of my main readers. He, he read five drafts of Less is Lost. But he always kept his advice to something's wrong here. You might try right reading this book, which is the kind of advice that, that he and I know to give each other, which is, there's something funny about this scene. It feels either too long or too short. This book has a great scene like it. Maybe it will have an answer. And that's so helpful. And when I give advice, I give the same kind of weird two-pronged advice. I was like, either you need to cut it or you need to make it 15 pages. You know, like of, I'd second guess my own advice. I'm like, this character is either too flimsy or or not flimsy enough like maybe you want to make it a caricature but it's right now it feels like you didn't try hard enough now that feels like that feels like uh it feels like there's humility in that approach and it feels like it's a, a lot more helpful because it gives the author a, a sense of choice you know when you're too specific and prescriptive i don't know it can feel confining and i feel like it leads to maybe it can lead to conflict, you know, but you hear these stories about authors and editors or authors and agents, though yeah. it's not all that common. I think usually the author is able to prevail, but I like the idea of just being like, you know, there's something here and not having a certain answer because that feels closer to the truth to me. I rarely read something from someone and know exactly how to fix it. I never do. Even, even when I teach, I can just sort of circle something and then Mostly what I tell them is I think like I think you need to read more 
things like this because there's so many ways to do it that maybe they're not aware of. Dialogue is the biggest one that people aren't aware. There's so many ways to write dialogue. They think it's sort of like writing a TV screenplay and it's, it's not. There's, they just need to look at all the options. And I try to do that for myself when I read. I try to take note of something I haven't seen before and file it away as, as another option of how to, to tell a story. I mean, I think the greatest thing Daniel did give me in less near the end of the book i was i had had a scene where he he leaves japan and gets on a plane and has to get like there's he has to get back home and daniel's like it's too you need to shorten everything at the end it needs to go really quickly you don't have to have him get on the plane you can have him stand up inside the restaurant where he is say dot 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 and then the next sentence dot 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 and have him already on the plane and no one will notice and he was totally, I was like, that's illegal. You can't do that. You can't just cut it away. But it's like a, that's a cinematic technique where you don't need to see all the other action. We're at the end of the book. You need to, things need to move quickly. And, and it worked. No one's ever asked me, why are there all those dots? <laughs> they just said, I loved how quickly it went. I think, I feel like listeners will benefit from hearing you talk about less and the creative pushback you know, that you went through in the editorial process where you're trying to justify this ending or, you know, trying to justify the ending by changing other parts of the book. But also you lost your British publisher with that book. People didn't rush to wrap their arms around less, correct? In the beginning. Yeah, not at all. I lost my uh, French publisher, lots of other publishers because my books didn't sell. That's what they're basing it on. And my British publisher who published my last four novels just dropped me and uh, I mean you should know that that I was I, I mean I think it's obvious most people think this is my first book it less was my sixth book and they look at your numbers and if you are middle-aged and have five or six books and they're not selling that's the worst place to be in publishing because you're not young enough to be exciting and you're not old enough to be a, a, a grand elder to be rediscovered you're just kind of in the middle place where no one has any faith in you anymore that was, yeah, that was really, we went to 12 publishers in the UK and all of them turned less down. And then the book is published and it winds up winning the Pulitzer Prize, which I have to imagine is always a, something of a surprise to an author. Maybe it's not a surprise to certain authors, like if, you know, like Philip Roth or something at a certain point, you know, an author like that, you get to a point where it's like, oh, I won. Of course I did. <laughs> you know, But I think yeah, for, sure. for most writers, it would be like, holy shit. Like you were, and again, I'm, I'm basing this on my research. So correct me if I have the historical record wrong. You were changing an incontinent pug's rhinestoned diaper at a Tuscan writer's residency when you learned that you had won the Pulitzer Prize, which I have to imagine is a first for an author in that position. As far as I know, I mean, it's pretty specific, but it's true. That's totally true. I was. <laughs> and I finished changing the, the, the rhinestone covered suspender diapers and put her in bed with the Baronessa. And I went downstairs and my boyfriend showed me the, his phone and I didn't believe it. Because I didn't know when the Pulitzer Prizes are announced. Do you know? I, yeah, I couldn't tell you. I wouldn't. There's so many. I feel like there's so many awards. And I feel like... It's sort of like the uh, the Met Gala. I feel like it's always happening, like every three weeks or something, even though yeah, it's only. Yeah, I have no year. idea when the Met Gala is. I know when the Oscars are. <laughs> Sometime in They're February, right, around right? Easter, Passover, Oscars—you know, trifecta. 
But yeah. um, but uh, it turns out it's around the middle of April <laughs> because that's what I heard. But I did I, it just wasn't on my mind at all. Like why would it be? Also, it was nine months after my book, so my book it, that was all over, book tour reviews, all that was great, and it was long behind me. So wait, for Pulitzer Prize, like, did you know that your book was a finalist? Was there any indication at all that it was in contention? They don't tell you. They announce the finalists after they announce the prize. So there's no, which is great, because then there isn't this weird horse race and, and writers feeling in competition with each other, which we should never feel because it's nonsense. We're not. We're on the same side, you know? Uh, and I don't like it when they pit us against each other. It's nasty. And... So they don't. With the Pulitzer Prize, they say, here's the winner. Here were the two or three finalists. And uh, I've talked, one of, some of those finalists are good friends of mine. Um, the year that I won, there's no bitterness, as far as I can tell, because we weren't, you know, like with the Booker Prizes, where you're tipsy in a tuxedo in a table, and they announce it, and then you ha they film your face. You know, none Ugh, of that. Right, right. That's awful. That seems I mean, yeah, actors I should do that, but not writers. We're not trained. I was, yeah, I was going to say, we're not trained. And I, I think maybe one of my favorite parts of Hollywood award shows is those, those responses, like getting to oh, see yeah, people. Oh, yeah, like, like getting to, like those performances feel extraordinary to me. Like I cannot imagine the control you must have to have to smile and clap and I don't know. It's just funny to try to read through all that. But I think that's the way to do it, the Pulitzer way, where the finalists are kept a secret. You kind of spring the award on somebody once it's announced and then announce the finalists after the fact. Because otherwise you have these short lists and I know they just announced the Booker Prize a few days ago. And I was thinking, uh, because I had uh, interviewed Elizabeth Strout recently and she was a finalist for O. Williams. So I know that she was there sitting in that room at one of these tables in a you know in a gown or whatever the way that you have to be for these award shows and just thinking like oh what would it be like to be there and you're obviously hoping you win and then you don't and then you just have to say like well i'm glad i was nominated it was an honor to be here which it was but also like it's got to be kind of a but i don't know just trying to imagine all the human components to that that you as a pulitzer winner were able to avoid because you're you know, you're in Tuscany and your boyfriend just shows it to you on your phone. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I've ever been in that situation of sitting and waiting to hear my fate in a tuxedo and on my third Negroni. I don't think I, I hope probably I never will be again because I'm good. <laughs> I don't need another prize or, um, or to be put <laughs> through that experience. But I have sat at the National Book Awards and watched that happen. And it's, I don't think it's pleasant. Yeah. It, no, no, thanks. It's too much. Yeah. But, but uh, you know, speaking of prizes, this is a component of less is lost. You know, there is a prize committee that less is on, which I found very funny, you know, kind of inside baseball publishing stuff. But you see these awards getting doled out and you think of all the books that are published in any given year. There's so many books published. I don't even know what the number would be in literary fiction just as one like subgenre. But it's a lot. And then you think like, well, how does this happen? And what are the politics? And how much of just like fate, you know, just like kind of uh, dumb luck is involved, you know, the way that these things happen with regard to timing and who's on the on the judge committee, you know what I'm saying? And like, who knows who? You, you do wonder as like a casual observer how this stuff works. 
have you learned at all? Like what happened with regard to the Pulitzer? Did you have to do research to write this part of the book, you know, in Less is Lost? I didn't have to do research because I have been on one of those prize committees. And I, you know, it was mostly was thinking, what is something really funny in the writing world? That's not what I covered in Less. And I was like, oh, I know something that's kind of <laughs> kind of funny because I know it's, I, I am personally aware of how random it is. And there's a, that there's a, there's a great book, I'm going to get the name call, wrong, called The Economics of Prizes or something that talks about literary prizes and how how likely the expected answer is to come out depending on the number of judges who are on it and the esteem of certain prizes and where that esteem comes from because of course it comes from nowhere. Fascinating about how, you, how these prizes game it. The more judges there are, the more likely they are to come up with the right answer, which is the answer that's everyone's is in the air, the big book that's already winning prizes. And the fewer judges, the more likely you are to get a wild card. And the Pulitzer is three. Very, very few. Three judges. Three judges. Yeah. And then it goes wild. before the main committee, and the main committee can veto. So in my mind, I'm like, I lucked out with whatever judges they were, which was random, you know, to me. And so that was luck. But then the fact that the main committee didn't veto it <laughs> meant like, okay, I guess it's, I guess, I guess I deserve it, you know? Yeah, you're sanctioned. Take it. Run. They vetoed Thomas Pynchon for Gravity's Rainbow the year he was supposed to win. The, so, Really? Yeah, he was supposed to win and the committee vetoed it. Why? Uh, who knows? Oh. I think they, it, you know, because it was postmodern and they were thinking it should go to someone, you know, it should go to William Styron kind of thing. Is that who it went to that year? I, I th no one got it, I think. Oh, right. Though there are those years when just like there's just no prize. But uh, <laughs> what was shocking. the name of that book you were talking about? The prize book? What was it called? It's it's called something like the economics of prizes, but I'm getting the word wrong. It's not economics. <sighs> Sorry, it's been a while I'll since track I read it. Down. it. I'm just, that, that sounds fascinating. So, okay, so you win the Pulitzer. And a lot of my listeners are writers who probably have dreamed of winning a Pulitzer. And I should say, I want to put an asterisk next to this because it's always a little bit delicate to talk about these things. I think most people who are grown-ups have a healthy attitude about prizes like this. They're kind of a necessary thing. It helps to shine a light on the industry and on good, you know, good writing. And it does perform a valuable function. But I don't think anyone I know who's a writer is sitting around obsessing Maybe there are a few, but like most, I don't imagine, I don't like the vibe I get from you is that you weren't sitting around like one, like you said, you didn't even know when the Pulitzer was announced. And yet I think anybody who gets into a creative art in a professional sense at some point has to imagine like, I mean, we've all grown up watching the Oscars and stuff. It would be, it would be unnatural not to imagine like, well, what kind of speech would I give? That kind of thing. I'm wondering, as I'm sure listeners might be wondering like how did it change your life like or did it change you like what have been the material impacts of winning the Pulitzer Prize on your creative life and just your life in general I, I know it changed everything for me completely it was transformative and in fact the 
I talk with, one of the nice things is a lot of the former literature winners call you or write you. So you get a, dozens of emails from, from Jhumpa Lahiri and Donna Tartt and all these people you never thought you'd ever talk to. And Michael Shabon called me and he said, um, there's no downside. It's only good. And it, that turned out to be true because it meant professionally that I could, I could publish my next book. I think that's often all that I want is to know that I can do, allowed to do the next one, that I can keep going for another five years that maybe I would make enough money to be able to, um, to, to get by for a little longer. But then personally, it gave me, it was a total release from the, the very stressful and, and totally unnatural for me game of, of, of sort of status and one-upmanship that can happen at a very petty level among writers. You know, in New York where you're at a cocktail party and you think I should really talk to that person because Maybe they could help me with this. You know, I'm not very good at that. And it never added up to anything. And I never have to do it again, <laughs> you know? Right. I, I, I'm, I'm free of it. And that's great. You know, I, can, I don't have to schmooze anybody. And uh, it gave me maybe confidence as a writer to think, like, writing less is lost, to say I'm going to do whatever I want against my editor's advice. I'm going to do it all my way because that worked last time. So I'm not going to, and hopefully not with arrogance, I think that would be the worst thing that could happen is having something like this happen and, and, and the writer would become arrogant and write things only out of ego. That would be a shame. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And I have to believe that the British publisher who had dropped you might have reconsidered. Like how, what happened to the business component of your publishing life with these different, you know, territories once your book wins the Pulitzer. Did the it... next day, every publisher in the UK wanted to publish it. The next day. <laughs> really? Yeah. And, you know, and then I got new publishers for all the other countries except Italy, which always stuck by me. Yeah, all of that became much easier. I'd have to worry about that for a little while. I knew. Oh, and I know, you know, something else that's, that was nice is that... Um, like the confidence of being in the stupid cocktail party, I also didn't have to pitch myself anymore, even on a show like this. Like, I don't have to... I can talk about other writers I like and try to, like, shine a little light on them the way people have done for me. I understand why they did that. It wasn't just because they're wonderful, humble people. It was because they didn't need to self-promote anymore. You know? Right. They're good. All of, It's just the the... Taking all of those things that were never part natural part of my personality away has been great. And and professionally it's better that I can write a piece for Bon Appetit magazine. <laughs> you know? Just something that I would have to pitch really hard at before. I don't have to do that. Because they'll be like, sure. So there's no downside. Uh, I, no downside. So far, I think the only... Not for me. You know, it's not like I got mad the next year when someone else had a Pulitzer Prize. Right. <laughs> what a jerk. It was Richard, Richard Powers, and I called him. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, okay, so now it's like you're in the club. With these notes that you get, like Donna Tartt writes you, and it's just like a congratulations, right? Or is it like we should meet up? Or what, what happens when you're in this club? It was, I mean, hers was really lovely, and she said, I love pugs too. Here's a picture of my pug. You know, they're, they're, they're real, and I remember the feeling in those days of just feeling like I was on a, a 
had been like kidnapped by aliens and taken up to the mothership or something. And then I was just, I would look at another email and it's like, well, I'm Jeffrey Eugenides. Why, thank you. For that. You know, it just was a, a very heady feeling of having felt, as every writer does, very alone. You have some writer friends, but you spend your time alone of being suddenly embraced by a community that I didn't think existed, in fact, doesn't exist. They don't, they're not all in a clubhouse somewhere. It only exists in those few moments when everyone comes together and is, um, and is, feels sort of compassion for, for another. That's nice. I can't imagine. I cannot imagine like what that must be like to suddenly be getting emails from down the tart, like unsolicited. You know, just I know. Um, uh, that's fantastic. So I always ask people when I get to the end of a conversation if they're working on anything new, and it's fine if you're not. But I'm just curious. Like, do you, are you somebody who is always churning? Do you have another book at least, like mentally going, or are you like actually? physically laboring on something. I, I have one mentally going. I did make myself start it this summer because I knew I had to have something else going. In, in case the book doesn't do so well, then my heart's already somewhere else. You know, the way like you kind of get a new dog when your dog gets to be around 11, just so there's a... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So there's we're gonna have a little overlap. Yeah. Um, so I have I have that, but I have to say, book tour has taken my mind out of out of out of writing the book, and I have to get into a place where I start. You know that there's supposedly working on a book. There's putting the words on the page, and then there's the time when everything that you notice or stories you hear, you think, how does that attach to the book? How does that go in the book? That the moment of where everything's funneling in and you're taking notes and maybe they're bad ideas, maybe they're good ideas, but you're paying attention. That's where I want to be. That's a great place to be for me. And I'm not there right now. Okay. So we don't know, like there's no like hint of what the book is about. It's not going to be, is it going to be a less book? It's not. It's, um, it's, it's set in Italy partially. And it will be, a um, another, um, big hearted novel with a comic tone, but it's not Arthur Lawrence. Okay. It's not Arthur Less. Well, I have so enjoyed meeting you, and I uh, I loved like getting a chance to enter this world, and to kind of be along for the ride with Arthur Less. And just congratulations on the run that you've been on these past few years. Like how exciting! It's always lovely. It, it you know it's nice to see it happen for somebody because it's like okay, this is possible. It's you know, possible. This can, this can this can unfold. Yeah, thank you. So kudos to you. Uh, and I wish you all the best on this, this new Italy book. Thank you so much for having me on. All right, everybody. That was Andrew Sean Greer, author of the new novel, Less is Lost. It's available now from Little Brown and Company. You can find him on the internet at andrewgreer.com. I do not believe he is on social media. I made a cursory attempt to track him down on social and I could not find him. So I don't think he's on social media, but you can uh, learn everything you need to know at andrewgreer.com. And of course, you can buy his new book. Again, it is called Less is Lost. Go get your copy right away. The Other People podcast is offered freely. If you want to support the show, I would certainly appreciate that. You can do so at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash other P-P-L pod. 
Don't forget to sign up for the email newsletter. I do my newsletter once a week. You can sign up at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. It's free. It's the same newsletter in either location. The Other People podcast has its own official app. Did you know that? It's free. It's a great app. It's a great way to listen. If you want to get the Other People app, go search for it wherever you get your apps. If you want to watch this program, you can do that at YouTube. Be sure to subscribe to the Other People YouTube channel. Search for it by name, Other PPL, with Brad Listy over at YouTube. If you would like to email me, if you have some feedback, if you want to tell me a story, if you want to suggest something, whatever it is, you can email me. The address is letters at otherppl.com. And next week on the show, my guest is going to be Lynn Steger Strong, author of an excellent new novel called Flight. So this will be Lynn's second time on the show. I loved her last book, which I think was called Want. She's got a thing for one-word titles, I guess, but she's a, a super interesting writer, and I'm excited about that one. So stay tuned for my conversation next week with Lynn Steger Strong. And I think that's it. I think I'm done here. I've said all that I need to say. Thank you for listening. Okay, I hope you're all right, wherever you are. I hope you're doing well. I hope your head is in a good place. Where is your head? Mm.